I got to tell you, Action Alerts Plus members, I am so happy to have our next guest, Alex Ryan, CEO of uh, the Duckhorn Portfolio, ticker symbol NAPA. And I think what's so fascinating about this, we, we hear all the time about how CEOs have extensive business experience. But Alex, believe it or not, worked his way up from working part-time at Duckhorn uh, starting in high school. Uh, he was president in, named in 2005, CEO in 2011, and he's been chairman for the last decade plus. So with that, Alex Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today on the AAP podcast. Appreciate it, Chris. Love to be here. Well, so Alex, you know, I, a lot of people know about wine. A lot of people may or may not know about Duckhorn. So can we let, let's just set the table as it were. Um, what's Duck, what, talk to me about Duckhorn's history, its legacy in the wine business, and, and how it relates to the overall wine industry today. Yeah, great question. Thank you. I appreciate that. Dan and Margaret Duckhorn are the founders of the, the Duckhorn portfolio. They started the company in 1976, and their goal was a very passionate Napa Valley story in which let's make the best Merlot known to man. Merlots in 1978, which our first vintage came out, were traded about $7 a bottle. They came out and charged $12.50 per bottle, which really set the tone of luxury Merlot, a luxury product. Um, at that time, there were 40 uh, wineries in Napa Valley. Now there's well over 500. And through the years, we've specialized on certain brands. Uh, we started with a duck theme. The Anamarket Duckhorn were passionate about ducks. We started with Duckhorn Vineyards, makes Cabernet Sauvignon Blanc Merlot. We moved into um, GoldenEye, which is a Pinot Noir from the North Coast of California. Moved into a, a brand called Paradux, playing the word pair of ducks, and so on and so forth. <laughs> Growing into a family of, of 10 different brands. Each of those brands, uh, one in Washington, nine here in California, specializes in a region or a special varietal or a special price point, something unique and gives authenticity to these brands. Collectively over the last four and a half decades, we've created a powerhouse, a family powerhouse of luxury brands. Uh, in 2021, decided to take it to the, to, to, the, to the street, if you will. One of the few, if only wine companies, pure play wine companies that has a scaled luxury portfolio. And we took it to the big board and it was just an opportunity for us to set our future up to lo relatively long-term business, long inventory cycles, uh, long asset cycles. And we try to set ourselves up for the long, long run, which is in, in line with what wine, luxury wine companies do. So from a husband and wife's dream in 1976, we've turned into be the only pure play wine company uh, in luxury scale on, uh, on the big board. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been a dream come true for me and the market seems to love what we're doing, the wine market, and continually supporting us as one of the few uh, growth uh, luxury companies right now that continues to outperform our category. So really exciting things happening at Duckhorn. So uh, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that, for, uh, particularly on the luxury angle, because you know we, we have a couple different investment themes that we use with the portfolio. And originally, when I was sitting down to get ready to talk to you, I was thinking, oh, wine, guilty pleasure. But in reading that the price points for luxury wine can begin as low as $15, and I think your Duckhorn's particular portfolio was positioned uh, on the low end, I think $20 a bottle up to 200 yes. it, it seems to me that it's perhaps more in line with uh, affordable luxury, if you want to think of it that way. Um, yes. But I was surprised to learn that luxury wine begins as low as the $15 marker. What, can you just, just describe the luxury market to us for wine? 
Well, there's a couple ways, and you've kind of hit it really accurately, right? You and I would agree that a $500 bottle of wine is luxury, but that's not, there's no scalability and growth in that. That's a pretty much kind of a do as you used to do type of business. We wanted to be in the accessible luxury market. Um, There's been 30 years of great tailwinds in the wine business. In the last two decades, at least, we've had premiumization. It's a concept we've all heard a lot about. People like moving up the scale and they want to be part of luxury, but they want to be what I call almost attainable luxury. They want to be in the area of luxury that makes them feel good, but doesn't (laughs) break the bank so they can repeat it, right? So we think we're in the really the sweet spot of the luxury, the scaled luxury portion. And I think our numbers are bearing that out. Um, uh, Again, you know, uh, that 15 to 20 hour break point, maybe to some that's considered lower end of luxury, but for the casual wine drinker, Day in and day out, twenty to twenty-five dollar bottles of wine are, are 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 something to be proud of and have authenticity, and they check all the boxes uh, for that person and that engagement for the luxury wine category. So we think we're in the right spot. Now, how just just to get a sense of of the business, you know, we're talking about this affordable price point. You know, call it fifteen to twenty-five, fifteen maybe thirty dollars a bottle. Yeah. How much of that is your business compared to over 50, over 100, closer to 200? Well, Chris, as you can imagine, I can't give you all the secrets because you never have me back on your show. So given <laughs> that, um, you know, the volume kind of fits in that in that 20, 20 to $35 uh, spectrum. And then it's a smaller volume, but a higher, higher kind of profitability as you move in that 50 to $100 spectrum. Um, you know, mm-hmm. leave it at that. You have you have your luxury that you drink Monday through Thursday. Then you have the expensive luxury you drink Friday through Sunday. Alex, I think I need to come out to St. Helena, California and visit you quite a bit. That's what I'm learning here. <laughs> uh, um, so let me, I, so the demand drivers, because you, you just said something that I want to pick up on a little bit, which is the profitability. Because I, I think a lot of folks can kind of rationalize, oh, yes, we do have a couple glasses of wine during the week, maybe more on the weekend, as you just alluded. We know that folks are, you know, dining out more, uh, and we know that um, restaurants are obviously leaning into, um, you know, beer, spirits, and wine to kind of drive right. their their tickets higher. But I, I think few people, myself included, know kind of the levers when it comes to profitability for wine. I, I, I think our perspective might be there's the grapes, there's the labor, but there's a lot that, more that goes into it. And I, I suspect, um, just as a novice, that weather might have a big impact as well. Sure. No, that's a good question. You know, we're a manufacturing company, we're an agricultural company, and we're a sales and marketing or organization, right? It's kind of three big blended professions into one. We have long inventory cycles. That gives you visibility, right? It gives you a long time to look into your cogs and your costs so you can address it correctly. We're well diversified though. As you could imagine as a manufacturing company, especially one of agricultural product, i.e. the grapes, being well diversified, have different vineyard locations throughout the state of California and within Washington, gives us a lot of flexibility to make sure we hit target margins. We maintain COGS appropriate for a luxury company. There aren't a lot of peers out there in the wine company. So we kind of, our peer group is luxury. Um, a bunch of, you know, we could all think of luxury consumer goods that command relatively high gross margins, high profitability. That's what we want to uh, kind of assimilate ourselves with. And for us to do that with agriculture, we need to be really well diversified in our productions. We have the level of control, not only for quality and style, which is important to the consumer, but for the, uh, the, the, the consistency 
of high producing gross margins, which is important, obviously, to our investors. So when you say diversity, that's got that's an interesting question, right? Because you you have to grow the grapes, you have to harvest yep. the grapes, and then they have to age, correct? Mm-hmm. But the consumer palate, it, it can be a fickle one at times, and it evolves yep. and it changes. So how, how do you stay on top of that? Yeah, we have a, you know, we've been doing this for almost 50 years, right? And I, and to your point, originally, I'm a production president of this company. I didn't come up in the administration side or the sales side. Um, we grow grapes, we tend grapes, we understand the soil, we have teams that work with our growers. We're very passionate winemakers who, who taste in, in a level of specifics that you and I can't even understand. And it's their job to protect the house palate, right? The style that is Duckhorn or Goldeneye or Decoy or what have you is different than the other competitors out there that we could probably all agree on. And that style is your signature. That style is the personality of the wines. And there is a process. It's not. It's not black and white. It's a. It's a. It's a. It's a time-honored process that's that's been happening since the Romans were drinking wine. That allows you to build in consistency and flavor profiles that that, that your consumers recognize with your wines. And that's that's what our winemaking and vineyard growing teams do day in and day out to make sure that every bottle of Duckhorn you get maximizes the vintage and is in keeping with the style that you expect. And how do you balance that? With innovation, because I, I did notice that um, yep. you get, you know, there is the evolving palette, like I mentioned, for the consumer. But with uh, Decoy Limited, over the last two years, you guys have done a, a pretty remarkable job of bringing bringing new products out. So is 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 that part of the strategy where you yep. have various labels and you innovate with each one to tink? I, I don't want to use the word tinker, but to bring either different um, flavors or price points to market. Innovations core to our, 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 our culture here. We've been doing it since day one. Innovation, let's face it, right? Your, your customers love it. Your trade loves it. The distributors love it. Your employees love it, right? Doing same old, same old is just kind of boring. So we are continually innovating, maybe a new region, a new flavor, a new varietal, uh, a new way of doing business, uh, a, new, a new tinkering of, of, an old, of an old style, right? And my job is to hold on to the things that are important, that are true to our core, that we don't change, and allow those things to evolve that do change. Let's, you know, let's be honest, there's a new crop, if you will, of consumers being born every 10 years, right? And how they wanna engage with wine is important to us. So we're making sure we have the opportunity to look and reach out to new customers, younger customers who are coming of age and, and getting involved with luxury wine. And how do they wanna be engaged with at the luxury level? So tinkering, as you put it, we call it technical innovation, but there's probably the truth <laughs> lies in between there somewhere. And sometimes innovation comes from the production teams, comes from the vineyard. Sometimes it comes back from our sales teams. And they said, look, all these cool things are happening in Georgia or Florida or Texas. Let's, 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 let's tinker in that area. So it's a constantly evolving process. Um, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned uh, Decoy Limited. Mm-hmm. It's, we have a very powerful brand called Decoy. And we did a tinker to it and, and kind of brought people up the price point a little bit. Another 5 to $7 per bottle for this little more premium appellated uh, bluer label um, uh, that, that has resonated, as you pointed out, extremely well with our customers. So uh, customers like to, they like to be introduced to new things as long as you do it consistent with, with your mantra and, and, and the kind of company you wanna be. And we've done that very successfully. A lot of them were introduced during COVID, which is interesting uh, as we were all at home uh, drinking a little decoy limited with our peanut butter and jelly sandwiches while we we're working at home. 
so it's it's been exciting. It will remain part of our culture. So I, the example that jumped out to me of reintroducing something maybe for a new uh, generation, you alluded to one comes along about every 10 years, uh, was the Burgundy. And I, I say that yeah. be, because, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'll be, how old will I be? I'll, I'll be 55 later this year. And when I was in my 20s, like, you know, there there was uh, White Zinfandel and, you know, the, all these other wines that um, we might uh, <laughs> laugh at now. But Burgundy was one that old people drank. And, yeah. and, and yet you have been able to reinvigorate that and do so in a fashion that's really driving decoy. So is, is that type of, uh, you know, refreshing, if, I, if you will, that you guys yeah. look at the portfolio every so often? Absolutely. You know, uh, decoy, uh, decoy Limited was a refresh and kind of an innovation within the decoy portfolio. We've done it with other brands. And the other end of the spectrum, one of our most expensive wines, the Costa Brown brand, uh, we uh, innovated by going over to Bur uh, Burgundy, negotiating with the, the, the mayors and the wine producers on the ground and being able to make a Burgundy wine and bottle it in the United States. This is unheard of for a village level um, named Burgundy wine um, and, and, and relatively high end. These are 100 R plus bottles of wine. So we're kind of in innovating, if you will, at both ends of the spectrum, both of them extremely well picked up. So I think if you have a powerful brand and don't screw it up and deliver to your customers exciting new opportunities to re-engage, you're doing the right thing. That's what wine, wine, wine is a, an emotional purchase, right? You need diapers and chips and, and eggs and milk, but you don't need a $50 bottle of wine, but it's an emotional no. purchase. So people want to be engaged with the authenticity and the story and the magic. That's what luxury, that's kind of the luxury wine business in a nutshell. And how do you, well, I, I imagine that there's some element of education that goes on as well. And I, I, I say that because, you know, the average person walks into, you know, depending on where you are in the country, a liquor store, a wine store, uh, if you're at Ralph's, they, they seem to have everything. But, you know, when you walk in, there, there can be a little bit of analysis paralysis yeah. for the everyday person. You know, I, I have a you know, wall of Cabernet, a wall of Chardonnay and, and the like. So how, how do you kind of arm um, retailers so that they understand and can help differentiate the product to the individual? It's interesting, really interesting. A um, couple of things. We have an individual winemaker behind each wine. We have an individual winery behind each wine at luxury. And again, I'm not talking about $5 bottles of wine. That's a different business. But at the luxury level, especially our level, $20 to $200, people, they demand authenticity. They want to associate with the brand that has authenticity. The waterfall has water in it. There's a story there. The story is believable. And the price point, the wines, and the style all meet their expectations. So that's how we talk to the consumer, either through digital means, uh, through our newsletter, through our clubs, at our wineries, which is a very powerful way of marketing and, and so forth. The other way is uh, brands, we have incredible brand equity, incredible strength. That strength uh, in, in incentivizes the distributor to get behind our wines, right? And when your wines don't stack up on the inventory stores, that's just enlightened self-interest. They're gonna get behind those brands that turn, especially now with increased, increased interest costs, it's expensive to hold inventory that doesn't turn. Right. That in turn moves down to the, to the, to the retailers, uh, large trade, a good example, Ralph, Safeway, things like that. Scan data and, 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 and proof points are really, really important. They're businessmen at the end of the day. They're passionate about wine, but 
but they're also business people. So they're going to want to understand what's turning and what's moving. And that just becomes a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because in salespeople, distributors and trade get behind those brands that hit all the proof points of the consumer and move their inventory turn move motivates more movements and more you end up receiving more resources than from your distribution partners. So, and we've been doing this for a long time, right? Making sure the right pricing points, the right incentives are in place that the distributor is getting taken care of so they can get behind your wine. You need to do your part, right? You need to make sure the wine is not out of stock. Doesn't, you, you don't have recalls. Your, your product looks and acts like it's supposed to, but it is truly a partnership and people reward good partners. Agreed, agreed. If we were in, um, if I was talking to a retail company, I would be asking location, 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 but you just hit upon a word that I think is critical for a product company. And I, I, I hesitate to call luxury wine or affordable luxury wine a product, but at the end of the day, you did say you're a manufacturer. So how, how do you ensure distribution? And what I mean by that as well is you know, if we were look at restaurants, right, a lot a lot of a key to a restaurant growth, whether it's the business or the share price, is going to be expanding the geographic reach, right? A lot of companies, restaurants move west to east. How are you guys doing in that? Are you? I, I seem to recall you're in 50 states, but how well do you blanket the United States and plans to move into Europe? Pretty pretty well. Um, uh, about 5%, 4 or 5% of our, our sales are, are international. I think there's a huge opportunity on export over time. That takes a little more time, as you would imagine. I think there's a huge opportunity there. Within the United States, the domestic US market is phenomenal. It's the market everyone else wants to get into. Um, so we continue to partner with great distributors. We continue to set up goals and targets. We consider to make sure they, they get their appropriate uh, slice of the, their gross profit, right? They, they eat and sleep by gross profit. Mm -hmm. You want your distributors to make a lot of money. You want them to be incentivized behind your product. And we continue to add salespeople in smaller and smaller geographic regions so that we can get greater penetration in, 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 in those uh, regional chains or those independent restaurants. We look at our universe of um, customers as more national accounts, the, 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 the Flemings, right? The Ruth Chris, the, uh, the Albertsons, the Kroger's. That's one piece of our business. And then the world of independence. And uh, they, uh, they, act in, uh, they act a little bit differently, but the health of both of them together tells me that we're healthy nationwide. We're pretty uniform throughout the United States. We don't have any real holes. Uh, I think clearly the growth just by population is gonna be east of the Mississippi over the long haul. Uh, and then, and then, um, and then that, you know, that penetration, I think success begets success at some level. If you're a tired brand that doesn't move, guess what? You're not, you're not gonna get your appropriate slice of the pie. It's a great partnership. We have a great marketing team, a great sales team, and we invest in these markets with our own people to make sure the distributors are held accountable and they get the support they need to do their right, job. Right. So I think it's understanding good long-term business. I don't need a hockey stick or hockey puck out of the, out of the, I don't need it right off the day one. I'd rather build toward many, many, many years of good, 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 consistent sales growth. So it's a longer term viewpoint, which is a little easier to manage than looking for the, the immediate home run. So with that longer term viewpoint, and you mentioned earlier that, you know, you have long lived assets and we know that they're, you know, good wine is not made in days or weeks, takes far longer than that. So as we sit here in late June, 2023, you know, are you thinking about what's going to, you know, finally be bottled in 2024, 2025? Is that, is that the right way to think about it? Absolutely. 
we think about it constantly, but the grapes are just, the flowering has just occurred. The grapes are now starting to form on the bunches. We're starting to get assessment of the crop, both quality and quantity, making those assessments. They'll get refined up until about the beginning of August. Then we've kind of got our harvest plan set up. We'll start picking late August and pick right through Halloween. Uh, this year, for example, it's, you, know, you, you read about the wet winters we had in California. We needed them badly. That will prove fruitful for the vineyards. Uh, we're going to we recharge our aquifers. The grapes are happy. It has been a cool, unfortunately, for some of the other parts of the United States, not so. We've had a relatively cool summer and cool fall or spring. That will delay our harvest. So we, we'll, we'll pick later into the season than we might otherwise. But um, a, a great winemaker constantly assesses nature's conditions and they, as they make their plan each year, the only thing I can tell you about a normal harvest, I've done it for 35 years, I've never seen one. <laughs> Mother, nature, Mother Nature throws a trick every single year and a, and, and, and a winemaker is as much a manufacturer and, and, and farmer as, as they are a chess player. And they are playing chess with Mother Nature. We got 10 winemakers, half for male and half for female and they're go about the job a little differently, but the wines are all good. And it's a, we're never bored here. How's that? You should come out. You'd love it out here. I, I think I would. So let me let, let me just see if I can get back to what I was getting at. So what you're going to um, harvest in the next several months, when right. is that likely to, you know, when will we as the consumer likely be able yeah. to drink that? So we're going to, we'll pick latter part of August, right through October. Those mm -hmm. wines, red, white, Pinot, Cab, Chardonnay, everything will be released as short, like Sauvignon Blanc, as short as about six months from harvest. And some of those wines will take four years to hit the market. Depends on varietal, brand, and style. Okay. And when when you say varietal and style, for the average person, what yeah. what are we talking? Can you just explain that? So well, I guess I, 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 I hate to leave people behind. No, 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 it's fine. Uh, there's three things you should, you should keep in mind. One's the varietal. Varietal is um uh think about like dogs right the, the category is dogs the category is grapes the dog is a labrador or do, a, a poodle or a shepherd right mm -hmm. grapes are you got your grapes chardonnay zinfandel cabernet merlot pinot noir those are the the varietals of grape that we make wine into so those varietals sauvignon blanc chardonnay the most popular whites they'll come out six months to a year after we harvest the grapes Merlot, Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, that'll come out probably one to three years, in some cases, some specialty wines, almost four years after we harvest the grapes. The grapes are harvested in the fall of this year. The grapes, the vintage on the bottle of wine will be, will be that vintage date will be the date in which the grapes were harvested. So this year we're harvesting the 2023 vintage that we released over the next four years. Okay. Uh, style, okay. style is the house palette, right? Style is, are your wines a little fruity or maybe a little tannic? Are they strong? Are they weak? Um, that's style. And then quality overlays style in that that is the absolute uh, perfection in which wines are made. Uh, is the acid and the alcohol and the proper balance? Is the fruit versus the tannin uh, correct? And are, are there any flaws in the wine? You've heard of crappy wine and good wine. You know, wine is a living, breathing product, and, and the quality is such that is managed by the winemaker to make sure that that wine ages gracefully in the bottle over time. Uh, yes. And are there any tricks to uh, 
like one of the things, so as I sit here and we're chatting, I, I showed you a couple bottles of wine that I have because I, I do enjoy a good glass of wine. However, I find it very challenging to find, and you might laugh at this, good split bottles because I don't like to waste it. So, yeah, yeah. so, so are there any tricks to the average person out there as to how to really care for their wine once they've opened it? My first recommendation is you need a couple more wine drinking friends so you can open up a full-size <laughs> bottle and finish it in the right amount of time with a nice steak or some chicken. That's my first recommendation. The second is uh, splits are great, uh, 375. They're essentially one half the size of a normal <laughs> bottle. They're phenomenal for trial. Um, or when one, one of your table mates wants to have a glass, but you want to have two. It's a, it's a really, really good way for trial. Um, Wine aging is important, right? You want to buy from quality producers and you want to keep your, your, your wines cool. You want to keep them laid down on their side in a cool, dark place until you're ready to, um, to, to drink them. Really, the worst thing for wine at your home is to go from a hot closet to a cold basement to a hot closet. You want consistency of temperature um, is the best thing you can do for, for aging your wine. There is another way to consume wine. People talk about when should I drink it? It's interesting. That's an interesting personal preference thing. Some wines are the younger the wine, the more alive and exciting it is. The older the wine, typically the more soft and mellow it is. That's really just a personal preference. It's like, how do you like your steak? You like it raw, or, you know, rare or, or, or well done. So I like younger wines because it's just alive and spicy. There's all kinds of flavors right there. But I do appreciate an older bottle wine that's more graceful and very subtle on the on, on the on the tannin. So that's just all I can do is ask you to drink a lot of wine. You'll figure it out for yourself. <laughs> I, and a lot of Duckhorn products at that, right? Of course. I don't want, yeah, that'd be your, your prerogative. Okay. Okay. And, and with that, um, you mentioned earlier some luxury good companies, but we, we do know that there are some other public companies out there that have wines. Constellation Brands is one, for example. Um, and then, oh, there's another one that's on the tip of my tongue, but I can't remember. For is there Are there others that you consider true competitors or are those just kind of certain aspects of their business overlay with you yeah. because of the yeah. because of the focus that you have on the luxury yeah. market or the affordable luxury market. Yeah, Chris, you have it. You have it nailed. You really do. We're the only pure play, meaning we do wine and wine only in luxury. A lot of the other guys you had mentioned, there's a handful of them out there. Um, they do other things, not only wine. They do wine across many price point spectrums from like five or six dollars all the way up to 20 or 30 or 40, 50 dollars. And they're good competitors, nothing wrong with them. It just, I think our focus makes it important. We focus only in luxury, only in wine. So we're really laser focused on what we do. Uh, selling a five dollar bottle of wine is quite different than selling a fifty dollar bottle of wine. You use it's a different buyer, a different method, a different margin profile, a different approach. So we're going to stay keenly focused in luxury and wine products only uh, into the future. And I think it served us really, really well. That point I, of differentiation. I, yeah, I was going to say that I, I really like the focus because. You know, I not that you compete with them, but it's always interesting me to me to watch others in you know the spaces, uh, and you know again um, take a look at Anheuser, um, InBev, and and what they're trying to do with Budweiser, which which I mean it's phenomenal to me, uh, and I'm not talking about Bud Light, I'm just talking about the constant iterations, the throwing of spaghetti at the wall to try and reinvigorate a product when. Um, I think what you're doing, which is staying true to your core 
And I suspect that your addressable market in terms of customers grows as people mature. They're no longer drinking Bush Bud Light and Pabst Blue Ribbon and all that other stuff. But right. as their incomes rise, you're probably getting a more um, sticky customer, I would think. I think so. What we're seeing there is, you know, in the luxury space, they're pretty loyal um, and there's a little more resiliency, right? If, if, in, if the great inflation is coming, the great downturns coming that we've been talking about for three or four years now, our, our customers seem really resilient. Um, we find them a little more educated with a little higher income brackets, a little more exploratory. The important concept there is what we're seeing is we're not seeing people leave luxury. I don't know if they're going to trade down in luxury over time. We're not seeing very much of that, but obviously it's the topic du jour in most of the business media publications but I don't think they're going to leave. I don't think you find my customer leaving a $50 bottle of Duckhorn and going to a 30 pack of, of, you know, of, of cheap beer. I just don't think that trade is in there. Why, in their, why in their are you future. picking on, why are you picking on Strohs like that? Jeez. <laughs> the, uh, no, no, but I, so, I mean, kidding aside, what we've seen thus far is that, you know, consumers have become increasingly choosy and that that's the key word, not trading down, but choosy because so far they, they continue to eat out. And I, I agree with you that they are, they are going to trade down in other areas, sac, you know, make sacrifices to keep right. the things that they want. Correct. And that's what we're seeing. And what we're seeing is maybe even a case of drinking a little less, but drinking better. And that, that fits right in, right smack in the middle of luxury wine. I like the way you put that. Um, okay, so you, you mentioned the highly anticipated yet to be seen recession. Um, you know, you, you've been at the helm uh, for a while now and you, you've been in the environment and they've been in the, sorry, the wine industry for a long time. What have you seen in past recessions and why may it be different this time? I'm not sure it's going to be different, and I'm laughing only from this. You know, it's funny, and in, um, in our in our business, what we've seen in in the last couple of recessions and downturns, we're a much smaller company, slightly different. But what I tend to see is people like their fine wine when the chips are down, <laughs> and actually, people like their fine wine when the chips are up. Um, the pandemic was a good example. The financial crisis was an interesting example. People didn't leave their favorite wine brands. They didn't leave drinking wines. Clearly that's when things are down. When things are up, you have these wonderful tailwinds, the whole category is up. So um, it, there's a lot of resiliency built into, 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 into uh, fine wine. And, I, and like I said earlier, I absolutely believe that fine wine consumers, unless you give them a reason to leave, they, they are very loyal to your brand, your style, your new products, your price increases, um, your, your limitations on short crops, right? They, they're really loyal, loyal, loyal fans in that luxury wine space. So when, if, if, when the recession comes, um, a lot of bankers hopefully will be drinking our wine. And when the recession goes, maybe a lot of bankers will be drinking a lot of our wine. So let me, let me ask you a question then, because I, I, for, there was forgetting the name of the, the vineyard and there was, it was a California vineyard, very interesting um, product. And there was one that uh, it kind of became um, very well known and, and it was the prisoner. Okay. Yeah, yes. And 
I just remember the price point going from you know, 35, maybe 40 bucks about a bottle to being one day in California, in a CVS, no less, seeing a bottle of the prisoner there, and I almost fell over with the price point. So how, how do you, you know, you, you mentioning that you want to give good value, you want to cater, you want the distributors to make money so they're good partners. How do you know when not to press the pricing any further for the fear of turning people off? Yeah, that's, you know, that's the, that's the $10,000 question, right? It's uh, it, it luxury invokes a feeling of scarcity, right? And really, really managing you don't want to fulfill every order. You want to say no to the last two guys, right? Because you want them to want it more the next time. So it's a very delicate balance of growing a commercial brand on the wholesale channel and creating the aura of scarcity to help manage a premium price point. It's, 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 it is not easy to do. It takes a lot of marketing prowess um, and very smart and disciplined sales distribution strategies. Uh, kind of a, you want to spread your, 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 your butter thinly over the whole landscape of, 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 of the market. Um, I, I don't know if they did a good job or a bad job. I think Prisoner has been a great, a great company for our industry. Got a lot of people drinking oh. wine, interested about wine, that's wonderful. But um, the one thing in our business you watch out for is once you, once, you, once you go down the downhills, it's really hard to pull yourself back up. So I think long-term viewpoint discipline, pricing discipline, distribution discipline that can be painful in the short term, but pays off in dividends in the long term is your most critical element. And like I said, we've been doing this for 45 years. We're, we're just getting good, but we have seen a couple of bad moves and learned from it. So I think, I think just steady as the ship and understanding your business and your customer long-term is important. Um, you know, you make pricing decisions with a luxury product. You make them once, you may not, you may not recover. And just really have to think that through. Okay. Okay. And, um, you know, one one last question, just to kind of revisit it. Um, visibility. You guys have come out and said you expect high single-digit organic top-line growth between 2022 and 2025. Um, how much of that is organic? Is there potential acquisitions in the pipeline? And 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 understanding that you can't, you know, say, oh, we're gonna we're going to specifically do this. But if there are if if there is an M and A component to it, what would be some of the things you're looking for? Great question. I got it. Our algorithm that we've talked to the street and I stand behind it is high single digit or organic growth. It's, it's tricky, if not scary, to try to bring in your algorithm acquisitions. Winery acquisitions, they're, they're so complex and they're so they're different sizes and different scales. So that is organic growth, organic distribution gains, um, continuing uh, um, uh, uh, new product development, as we've talked about, pricing and so forth. Uh, acquisitions are part of our strategy. We've done two. We have, we have 10 brands. We've bought two. We, we built eight. And uh, I believe that um, acquisitions will be part of our future. The types of things, you know, we're a luxury. We're not a fix-it shop, right? I don't claim to be a fix-it guy. I'd like to buy luxury, manage luxury brands that have distribution power, have good uh, brand equity, um, obviously have good financial structure, are creative to our, our margins uh, and our profitability. Um, and, and those are those will command a re, no matter what the market is they'll command some type of a premium. It pay less to get less is not necessarily part of our strategy. So we'll be looking at those brands that carry the same um, traits that we we pride ourselves of having within the current ten brands, and largely that's brand equity. It might be a diversification play, 
like you pointed out earlier, possibly across the pond. It's a little more complex, certainly not out of the question, but there are regions and varietals that we have opportunity to here domestically in the United States that we could uh, uh, take a look at. I, I see that world opening up slowly these days, um, which I think just more opportunity is gonna come out, but the organic growth is so strong and so safe right now that we'll be, we'll be a discerning reviewer, which you would expect from us, but I do see um, that would be additive to that single high digit. Is, is it fair to, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if we do see a recession, not saying we will, but if we do, could that potentially uh, offer more opportunities for you yeah, on the m and front? So. I do think so. Yes, I think that's a fair, fair assessment. Okay. All right. Well, Alex, we, we've been chatting for quite a bit and I wanted to thank you for that. But before we do, um, you know, I, I come armed with some questions and we, it's always a good conversation, but is there anything we didn't talk about mention for Duckhorn, talk about the wine industry that we should before we get out of here? No, you, you were very thoughtful and very, uh, very, uh, fully covered kind of the whole spectrum. I think that, uh, it's interesting. Um, I'm, I'm lucky enough to work in a, in a category that's been popular since Julius Caesar's time, right? The Romans mm -hmm. have been drinking fine wine and we've been doing it ever since. So, um, there aren't a lot of uh, public wine companies uh, uh, because I think it, 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 it takes a long time to fully understand and manage margins and supply. We've done that really, really well, but it's not easy. So we've, we've studied that over about 45 years, but the category is solid. People are going to continue to share fine wine with their family and friends and over business deals and at social events uh, into long past, long past my time here at Duckhorn. So I think that uh, we're in a category in an industry that has long, long lives. And so I'd like to see more people join us in the, in the public markets. But for right now, we're going to take our leadership position and run with it. So next time we do this, maybe face to face with a couple glasses of wine. That would be, be that would be great. Let me oh, let me let me ask you one one other yeah. thing. I, I, I apologize for not not asking this sooner, um, but I, I think it's a good wrap question. Um, What's the one, as you visit with institutional investors, speak with individual investors, people are trying to be smart about uh, the Duckhorn story. What What's the one common thing that they kind of, um, I don't want to say don't get right, but they, but it's the hardest thing for them to wrap their heads around in understanding the Duckhorn story? Yeah, that's a great question. You're seeing a lot of right now with the subjects in the, in the media, the business media of, of trade down and how inflation might affect the fine wine drinker. It's really bifurcating our industry. People speak of the wine industry. Well, the wine industry is pretty big. You have $5 wine, an $8 bottle of wine, and $10 bottle of wine, or $20 to $50 bottle of wine, right? Those industries are so different. So what, what, might, what might beget the entire wine industry, you need to really parcel it out and take a look, is the luxury consumer and the luxury product cycle and the luxury way of doing business different than just broad wine? And I think people think wine is wine is wine, and that's, that's part of my educational soapbox that it's not right we're more aligned with luxury products with the luxury mindset than just a necessity i mean just for example a guy making five dollar bottle of wine he probably has to worry about um a customer changing into marijuana or spirits or beer or something else like that i don't see a 50 dollar bottle of wine drinker a loyal duck or 50 dollar bottle of wine drinker change into strohs whatever you had mentioned like 30 <laughs> beer, the 30 pack of beer um, at the beach. I just don't see it happening. So, so really understanding the, 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 the bifurcation within our business is something I continue to work with in the investment community. 
So, so it's fair to say that, you know, when, you know, others were struggling in, in say, the, the beer industry with, um, you know, oh, uh, spike seltzers are coming on stream, that sort of thing, not a blip on your radar. Correct. Yeah. And we're lucky for it. Excellent. Excellent. That's wonderful. Well, Alex Ryan, CEO, chairman of Duckhorn Portfolio, thank you so much for joining us. And I will take you up on your offer to visit you out in St. Helena, California, and do the side-by-side -side taste test. We will work on that date. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Chris.